You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. All right. Welcome. Uh, as, uh, as Ovi said, we're starting a new uh, sermon series, so we're going through Daniel. And, um, and yeah, I'd just like to prepare you guys. So, uh, we, uh, like Ovi said, we, it, going through verse by verse in Daniel, I mean, it's, we'll, we'll do what we can, but there's just only so much we can do. So, um, we, uh, so we are going to, at the very least, try to do one chapter every sermon, right? Um, and even that's going to be uh, pretty difficult. Um, I mean, you, you could easily do the book of Daniel in, like, well, over a year, right? Uh, and still be skipping over some stuff. So, um, all that being said, just bear with us as we, as we try to navigate through this, because uh, we just... We are going to be skipping over some stuff, and that's just going to be necessary for us to, uh, uh, to actually kind of adhere to timetables and still um, go through the book. Uh, however, uh, that doesn't mean that God can't speak to us uh, through what we do go over. So, uh, so we'll, we'll do what we can, and we'll, uh, we'll learn what we can in the meantime. Um, so we're, uh, we're going to be in chapter one, and uh, this, uh, this chapter is... Um, it's not short, but it's short enough to where we can actually read through the whole text. So, uh, so we'll go through the whole text uh, today, uh, but a little bit of historical context. Uh, if you've been with us in D groups, uh, this is, a lot of this is going to uh, just come pretty quick because that's what we've been going through. So uh, essentially what, uh, what's been going on is, uh, is the nation of Israel has already split into two. So there's the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom, uh, they rebelled against God pretty early on, um, and uh, God sent a lot of prophets to them, telling them that Assyria was going to come down and conquer them. So that, that's already happened at this point. And uh, so the northern kingdom has been uh, dispersed for a bit. But the southern kingdom, they adhered to, they adhered to God a little bit more closely, so, uh, so they were able to stick around for a little bit longer. Um, and, uh, and now we're coming up to this point where uh, Judah, uh, the southern kingdom, they now have uh, they've rebelled against God long enough to where uh, God has sent some prophets to them, telling them, "All right, uh, I'm gonna pull the plug on this. Uh, this is what's gonna happen. Uh, you'll be exiled, spread across the entire earth." Um, that's where uh, Jeremiah he's actually prophesied this. Uh, kind of the analogy that Jeremiah uses is, "You'll be like ash in the wind, right? Uh, you'll just be totally decimated." Um, and, uh, and then immediately after that passage, that's where Jeremiah says, but I have a plan for you, a plan to prosper you and make you great. You know, the verse that's on all of our coffee mugs, right? Uh, but we always forget the first part where God says he's going to decimate them. So, that's, uh, <laughs> so that's, that's, that's kind of where we're at, right? So, so Judah has rebelled. Uh, God's, got, God's already told them that he's, uh, he's going to uh, kind of disperse them across the world. And, uh, and so now we find ourselves here. Um, and, uh, and essentially, the, uh, the king of Judah, uh, he's, um, uh, he was given a prophecy, and he was basically told, just give in, just surrender, uh, just accept your judgment, and, uh, and a lot of people uh, will kind of survive the event. And he said, nah, we can do it. We can take Babylon. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and, uh, and so uh, obviously it didn't end well. And so what happens is Nebuchadnezzar comes in, uh, they kind of squish Israel, um, and uh, it wasn't, wasn't particularly difficult for them especially compared to uh, the major battles uh, in Babylon. So 
uh, Babylon sweeping throughout the nation, uh, throughout the known world at that time, uh, and through the nation of Israel. And, um, and he conquers Israel uh, the first time. And this first time is when he goes in and he actually takes uh, all the best and brightest of the nobles' uh, kids and royalty kids. Uh, so all the smartest kids, he actually takes them and deports them to Babylon. So that's, that's where we find ourselves right here. This, uh, and if you care about dates, this happens around uh, 539 BC. So uh, we're about 540-ish years before Jesus was born. So that's kind of the historical context. That's kind of what's going on. Uh, and the way that Daniel is written is uh, it's almost, it, it's, it's not two books, but it's, it's almost written like right in half. There's the first half and there's a lot of narrative and it kind of explains uh, Daniel uh, and his friends and the events that happen. Um, and it also talks about the fall of Babylon and then the Persians coming in. Daniel also served with the Persians um, and, uh, and all of that. And then the second half of the book is largely comprised of uh, different visions that happen during Daniel's life. So... The book isn't necessarily chronological in that way because the visions happen during the first half of the book. Um, so uh, that's, that's kind of the structure of the book and, uh, and kind of the historical context. Um, so now we'll actually, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read the entire chapter and then we'll go ahead and pray and start digging in. So uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including uh, some of the royal family and nobles, youths in whom there was no impairment, and who were good-looking, suitable for instruction in every kind of expertise, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king also allotted for them a daily ration of the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. And he ordered that they be educated for three years and at the end of which they would enter into the king's personal service. Now among them, uh, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the official assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But David made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted favor, or Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has allotted your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking gaunt in comparison to the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, who the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please put your servants to the test for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined in your presence, and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he put them to the test for ten days. 
And then at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had eaten the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine that they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every kind of literature and expertise. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, uh, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of expertise and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the soothsayer priests and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of the Cyrus king. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll start getting in. Dear God, I just uh, I thank you for today and just uh, another opportunity for us to, uh, to read your word and, uh, and just gather together um, in, uh, in fellowship. Um, I ask that you just you teach us something today and just open our hearts and our minds to, uh, to what you have for us. And uh, I pray that you just you, uh, you allow me to communicate uh, accurately and, uh, and communicate wholly what you have for us. Um, I ask that you just withhold anything uh, from me that, uh, that isn't from you. Um, just speak to your church today. We love you. Amen. All right. So, um, th- so obviously, this uh, this story is uh, uh, is a little bit desperate, but also uh, encouraging in in a lot of ways. Uh, so, Babylon's conquered. Uh, the kings are de- uh, the kids are deported. Um, but it, it's also kind of a best case scenario, uh, I guess, for Daniel and his friends. Um, so they're, uh, they're the best and the brightest. Uh, they're allowed to go into the king's court uh, and all that stuff. Um, so like I said, it's, it's kind of a best case scenario for them, kind of a worst case scenario for really everyone else. And, uh, and so it, there's, there's kind of this, this contention in this story. Um, now, I, I do want to hit on the, uh, on the names real quick because that kind of sets the stage for, uh, for the rest of the story. So um, names uh, have meaning uh, in the Bible. And uh, a lot of times the story is actually told in the names. Um, and, uh, and so I, I do want to give you kind of the, the kids' names and then their new names uh, and the meanings behind them. Uh, so Daniel, uh, his name means uh, God is my judge or God alone is judge. And Belteshazzar uh, simply means Bel protect his life. Uh, and, so, and so what's, what's going on is, uh, is, is Daniel, has, uh, he has a name, and that name glorifies God, uh, but now he's Babylonian, right? Uh, and so he's given a Babylonian name that worships the Babylonian gods. Um, and, uh, and so again, a, a good judge, at least a good judge, not all judges, but a good judge, they would protect the life of the innocent, right? Um, and, uh, and so they're, they're giving Daniel this name that kind of switches his name, uh, orients it away from, uh, from Yahweh and to Bel, who would be kind of the king of the Babylonian pantheon. Uh, Hananiah, his name means uh, Yahweh is gracious, uh, and then it changed, he changed his name to, uh, to Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Aku is the moon god uh, of the Babylonian pantheon. 
Uh, and again, this is, this is kind of a, a it's, it's like a divine mocking of God, uh, where it's Yahweh is gracious, he's kind, uh, but Aku, he commands, right? Uh, he, he lays down the hammer. Uh, and Mishael, uh, who is what God is, uh, changed his name uh, from that to Meshach, who is what Aku is, right? And again, you, you kind of see this divine mocking within their names. Um, and, uh, and lastly, Azariah, Yahweh has helped, uh, was changed to Abednego, uh, which means servant of Nabu. Uh, so Nebu was, uh, was the, uh, the father of Bel, uh, who, would, who was the king over the pantheon. So again, Yahweh has helped, Yahweh has served, he's, he's helped us. But Abednego is, no, 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 you serve Nebo, right? So again, there's this, there's this divine mocking. And so this, this isn't necessarily new. This, was, this is actually pretty common practice. Uh, when, uh, when a conquering nation comes over, uh, people kind of adapt new names or they're given new names uh, to their new rulers. Uh, we see this with uh, Joseph when he became ruler over Egypt. He was given the Egyptian name. Um, and uh, we, we also see this with, uh, with a character by the name of Hadassah, uh, which we all know as Esther, right? She was given a Persian name. Um, even even uh, Saul, right? He had a good Jewish name, Saul, uh, but he often went by his Roman name, Paul. So uh, this, this wasn't uh, super uncommon, and this was often used to just assimilate people into the new culture that they have to abide by. Um, and... Uh, and so there, but there is this element of, of kind of uh, demoralizing, right? And again, you see this in the names where it's, uh, especially in ancient civilizations, you kind of saw this conflict where it's, if a nation conquers another nation, it's, it's kind of idiomatic or symbolic of our gods defeating your God. And you can see this in the names where it's get rid of your names, get rid of your worship of your God because our gods have conquered you. Your God has rejected you. Your God has forsaken you. Our gods have defeated you, have defeated your God. And so as, as this new culture is kind of sweeping in, there's, there's kind of this, uh, this systematic removing of Yahweh because he has been defeated and now accept the Babylonian pantheon because they now rule your land. And this, this kind of sets the stage for what we see uh, in, uh, in, in the rest of this chapter. Uh, is, uh, is, is God kind of moves, or uh, God allows Babylon to move in, uh, conquer the land. All the, all the golden utensils and temple uh, vessels have been taken off to Babylon. It says that they were taken off to the land of Shinar, uh, which if you're not familiar, um, that's actually the same place in, uh, in Genesis 14, I think. Uh, so Genesis is where uh, they actually built the Tower of Babel. So after the flood, all the people go to the plains of Shinar to build a city and a tower so that they could achieve up to God. They could reach the heavens and make a name for themselves. Uh, essentially, what was happening in the Tower of Babel was we don't need God because we have each other, right? We can ascend to deity all on our own. And so that, and that's exactly what's happening. And so Daniel doesn't call uh, them Babylon. He calls them the land of Shinar. It's, it's like this, this, this Jewish kind of twist to it where it's, hey, remember, remember where you guys came from, right? You guys were the pinnacle of sin after the flood, right? And so there, that's, that's kind of setting this stage uh, to where uh, God has allowed Babylon to come in and conquer over Israel. And so now there's this new culture uh, that's demanding uh, new expectations and demanding uh, the, the people of Israel to reject Yahweh and accept their new fate. 
So there's, uh, there's three points uh, that I want us to, uh, to kind of look at, but uh, given kind of the contrast that, uh, that we see in this story between the Hebrew names and the Babylonian names, uh, I, I want to play the same game where we're going to look at what the, what the world and what the dominating culture calls us to, but then also look at the corresponding uh, elements of what God is calling us to. And so uh, we're going to look at these two things and kind of uh, juxtapose them together and then uh, kind of look at uh, these different elements. So the first point is the world calls us to submit to the authority of culture, but God calls us to submit to the sovereignty of God. The next point is uh, the world calls us to be drawn into the beauty of culture, but God calls us to live more beautiful lives. And then lastly, uh, the world calls us to have our minds captured by ourselves, and yet God calls, our, calls us to have our minds captured by Christ. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and take a look at that first point. Uh, and again, that first point is the world calls us to submit to the authority of culture, but God calls us to submit to the sovereignty of God. And, uh, and, and this, this, this point, the sovereignty of God, um, I'll just ruin the whole book of Daniel for you, okay? So, sorry, the rest of the teaching team. Okay, so the, the entire book of Daniel is about the sovereignty of God, right? That's it. We can go home, right? That's, that's Daniel, okay? So, uh, we see all through the, the narrative portion, you see God's sovereign, God's sovereign, God's sovereign. He's still in control, he's still in control, right? And then through all the visions, all the visions are talking about the, uh, the ebbs and flows of the world, uh, other nations uh, kind of ruling, conquering, uh, but God's still in control, he's still in control. God is sovereign. And so, it, it, and this, is, this is radically encouraging to a nation that's just been uh, spread out like ash in the wind, right? Where it's like, what is happening? What is God doing? How could he let this happen? But the book of Daniel is telling us, no, don't, don't, don't get distracted by that. He's still in control. He's still in control. And so what, uh, what, what the Babylonians are calling is as the culture is taking over, the, the world is, is telling the nation of Israel to submit to the authority of their new culture. So I just want to read that, uh, the first two verses one more time. And it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, which again is the same place as the Tower of Babel, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And again, what's, what's unique about this is that it seems as if, and again, ancient context would, would, uh, would argue that it was, uh, it was the Babylonian gods that caused uh, Babylon to be uh, superior over Israel. It was, uh, it was the strength of their pantheon that, that dominated Yahweh. But we actually see the, the complete opposite here, right? It's actually Yahweh that actually hands Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. It's actually the sovereignty of God that actually causes Judah to be conquered. It's actually God that causes this event. And this, this, this gets very uncomfortable, and this, this really kind of uh, poses this, this massive conversation. It's, it's this discussion that's called the problem of evil. Um, and I'll be honest, I just don't have time... Uh, to, to really get into all the, uh, the nitty-gritty of it. Uh, if you don't know, I, I teach theology and apologetics to high schoolers. And um, uh, between both grades that I teach, 
I, I probably talk about this topic uh, for about like 10 to 12 weeks, right? Either building up to it, talking about it, and then the ramifications of it. Uh, it, it and and meeting, I'm talking about this every day for like 12 weeks, uh, and that's just the high school level, right? So like I said, this, the problem of evil is a, it's a massive conversation, and, and well, we're going to talk about it for a couple more minutes. So uh, just, just bear with me. But this, this does pose this, this question uh, of, so God is all good, so he, he hates evil. He doesn't like evil in the world, right? Uh, and he's all powerful, so he can stop it if he wanted to. And he does want to because he's all good, right? Uh, and he's all-knowing, so he knows that evil's happening and he knows when it's going to happen. So why is there evil? Why would God do this? And there's, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot here. There's a lot to unpack. But, uh, and, and the reality is uh, that Judah had rejected God. And so he, what he's offering them is exactly what they wanted. You want to reject me? You want to lose me? Okay. Then what you get is the Babylonian pantheon, right? If you don't want God, I'll give you exactly that. And, and this, is, this is kind of this, this element, and again, this doesn't really capture everything, but uh, what, what we need to recognize is the fact that God is still just, right? And so, yes, evil exists in the world, but that's mostly because we're in the world, right? And, and that's, that's where this evil comes from, is, is we do evil things with each other to each other. And so this evil exists, but it exists, and because God is still good, he still uses the evil to do good things. And that's something that if God wasn't omnibenevolent, if he wasn't all good, he wouldn't be able to take bad, evil things and turn them into something good. And so he, he does desire for us to, to, uh, to seek God, and this is, actually goes back to Eden, Right? is God gave Adam and Eve, Eve the opportunity to leave God, the opportunity to sin, the opportunity to create evil in this world. And yet, he also pre uh, prevented them from staying in Eden and creating an eternal hell for themselves. The opportunity to live forever in separation with God. And so he created, he created the possibility for evil to exist, but then when they introduced that, he separated them from eternal life so that he could chase them back into Eden. And that's what we see here, is Judah has rejected God, and so he's allowing evil to exist in their world, uh, not to punish them, because what they deserve was hell, but what they got was Nebuchadnezzar. And so what, what he allowed is he allowed Nebuchadnezzar not to decimate them, not to judge them, but to chase them back. And so, like I said, there's, there's a lot more to this conversation, and that's, that will have to suffice for now. Um, but what the world is calling us into, what the culture, what the dominating culture is arguing, is that if the culture is in authority, then it's the best idea. It wins. Right? And so we, if we want safety, then we have to conform to the culture. We have to submit to the authority of the culture that has won, that has dominated. But what if there's another option? What if we do exist in that culture, but we still submit to God's sovereignty? What if we just re relinquish the opportunity to, uh, to submit to the authority of culture, and instead we submit to the sovereignty of God? And just like what Daniel is arguing is, yeah, we've been conquered, but God is still my God, and I still answer to him. And he's way scarier than Nebuchadnezzar, right? 
And, and that's, that's kind of this, this concept that, that we're going to see uh, throughout the rest. And this is, this is kind of this contrast of, of the world is calling us to submit to the authority of the dominating culture because the culture won. Right? But God is calling us, no, 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 I'm still sovereign. I'm still moving the pieces. I'm still in control. And so the next point, we'll just move on to the next point, which is going to be uh, the world calls us to be drawn into the beauty of culture but God calls us to live a more beautiful life. So we'll, uh, we'll read another passage, and this is going to be uh, in verse 4. Uh, and it says, Youths in whom there was no impairment, who were good-looking, suitable for instruction in every kind of expertise, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered Eshpenaz, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king also allowed it, allotted for them a daily ration of the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and ordered that they be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So as I said earlier, this is far and away the best case scenario, right? Our nation's been conquered, but, uh, but instead what we're being offered is uh, uh, the best education at the best nation with the best food and the best jobs and the best networking. This is, this is truly a best case scenario uh, for Daniel and his buddies. So we, we've been conquered, yeah, and that's unfortunate, and yeah, I might get homesick, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have the king's ear, right? The king's gonna ask me for my opinion, right? Uh, I'm, I'm going to be educated in, the, in the, best, uh, the best education system in the known world, right? A lot of people look at Babylon as kind of uh, the first nation to kind of codify arithmetic, right? These, these people, uh, even, even in their language, the, their, syntax, uh, their syntax was more complicated than the rest of the world. Even in the way that they just spoke to each other was just more exact and accurate, right? It's just everything that they, they did was just above and beyond, uh, even uh, n- not only just biblical scholars, but even secular scholars recognize that Babylon was probably the, the best of the ancient civilizations that conquered the world. They were the smartest, they were the richest, and they were the most powerful. And this is often why they were able to do that, is because as they conquered, they took the best and the brightest and they, they assimilated them into their culture. All these other culture, or all these other uh, nations, when they conquered, uh, they, would, they would conquer and conquer and conquer, and they would actually spread themselves too thin until they finally collapsed, but not Babylon. Babylon actually got stronger as they conquered. They incorporated more people into their culture. They educated more people. So everyone was Babylonian by the end of it. And so this is is kind of what's going on here. And so, like I said, this this is a best-case scenario for Daniel and his friends. And that's what the world is is calling, or that's what Babylon, what the world is calling them into is to be drawn into the beauty of the culture, right? We're better because we're more beautiful because we're smarter, because we're stronger, right? Be in awe of the beauty of this culture. Be drawn into it. Assimilate into it. And again, it's, it's, it's hard not to. They're, they're given, like I said, the, the best education, uh, better than anything that they could have hoped for, they stayed in Israel, right? The best food, which again, would have been the best case scenario because they were, they were under siege, right? There was, they were running out of food, right? So now things have markedly got better. Uh, the, the best position, uh, like I said, the best authority. Uh, now they can network with each other uh, and with a king. 
they have the ear of the king. Everything is, is amazing about this situation. And, and that's exactly what culture is calling them into, is to be drawn into the beauty of the culture. But that's not what happens. Daniel's kind of disenchanted with it all. Right? He, he's, he's kind of unimpressed with the best thing that this world had to offer. And so we skip down uh, after he rejects uh, the food, and after he, uh, he kind of convinces the official uh, to not eat the food. It says, and then the king talked with them, and, and out of them, not one of them was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's personal service, and as for every matter of expertise, and understood about um, every matter of expertise and understanding about which the king consulted them. He found them ten times better than, any, than all the soothsayer priests and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So instead of assimilating, instead of being captured, instead of, uh, instead of being drawn into the culture, the Babylonian culture, instead what, what Daniel was is he, was, uh, he, he actually saw this as a call to live a more beautiful life, a life that actually excelled above Babylon. Daniel did not, he understood God's sovereignty in this matter. He wrote about it. He knew that God was sovereign over the situation. And he didn't see this as an opportunity to sit back and just watch God do whatever he wanted to do. He saw God's sovereignty as a call to action. And that call to action was to live a more beautiful life. To live a life that put Babylonian culture to shame. To live a life where he stood out head and shoulders above everyone else. Ten times better than everyone else. And this this was the call that, that, that Daniel saw is God's sovereignty wasn't an opportunity for him to become lazy or complacent, but it was an opportunity for him to show the world, to show that culture that a more beautiful life is available. And we, we can see that with, with, with ourselves today, right? The culture offers us so much. It, it offers us safety as long as we agree, right? It offers us health and wealth as long as we're able to give to them whatever they want. Uh, if, if we assimilate into culture, if we just become one of the masses, we will find safety. But what if God is calling us to live a more beautiful life? There's this, uh, this, uh, this story in Greek mythology. Uh, it's about the sirens. Uh, if you don't know about the sirens... Uh, there's, well, there's a couple different uh, depictions of them. Uh, sometimes they're beautiful women with wings. Um, sometimes they're like these little chicken things. But they're, they're these sirens that sing very beautiful music. And often they, they sit on a very small island that's surrounded by very shallow rocks. And so they would sing this beautiful music. And as, uh, as sailors would sail past the island, they would hear the music and they, they couldn't help but to go find where this music is coming from. And so the siren's call actually would draw these sailors in and they would run aground, sink the ship, and everyone would die. And that's what the sirens wanted. That's all they wanted was just to, just to watch these, these sailors drown. And that's what they did. That's all they existed for. And so these, uh, these sirens, they would, they would sing out to these, uh, these unsuspecting sailors as they went by. And, uh, and there's actually two events. There's only two groups of people that actually survived an encounter with the siren. Uh, so uh, there's, a, there's a, one event where Odysseus, he's trying to get home uh, in the 
in the Iliad, and so he's trying to get home, and he recognizes that the, that the sirens, he got a tip off, so the sirens are gonna be up ahead, uh, and so he, call, he tells all of his men to stuff their ears with beeswax so that they can't hear anything. But then it begs the question, well, how do we know when we're past the sirens? And so he had himself tied to the mass of the ship, facing the men as they're, as they're working on the ship. And so he's tied to the mast of the ship, and so he hears a siren calls, and he's just screaming out to his men uh, to untie him. He has to go find them, right? And so he's just in this agony as he's listening to this beautiful, beautiful song, but he can't get to it. And so he's, he's just screaming, and then the men knew that they were past the sirens when they saw his dejected and depressed face. As, he, as they left, uh, he recognized that he missed his chance to ever interact with these sirens, this beautiful, beautiful sound. And so he was depressed and dejected, and so the sailors knew, okay, it's probably safe. And so they took the beeswax out and they untied him, right? And so that was, that was the one event in which they were actually able to, uh, someone actually listened to the sirens but survived the event. But there was another group of people that were able to sail past the sirens. It was actually Jason and his Argonauts. And uh, Jason, knowing where he had to go, uh, he actually contracted a demigod by the name of Orpheus. Orpheus, uh, he was the son of Apollo and a muse, and so he had the gift of playing music. And he played music just beautifully. And so what Jason did, it was he, he knew that as they were going through the sirens, he told Orpheus to play his harp and to sing beautiful music. And so as the men went past the sirens, they heard the sirens, but they heard Orpheus, and Orpheus played more beautiful music. They were unimpressed with the sirens. They listened to it, but they had Orpheus. Orpheus's music was just far more beautiful and they were unimpressed with the siren's call. And this, this kind of perfectly pictures uh, what God is calling us into. He's not calling us to be bound to a mast and just watch the culture calling out to us and just rage at the fact that we can't participate and then just be depressed and dejected when we missed our opportunity. We couldn't do what we wanted to do. I couldn't live wildly like I wanted to. I couldn't do what all my friends were doing in the culture, right? And just rage at God because of that. God's not calling us to that. He's not calling us to white-knuckle our salvation. He's not calling us to white-knuckle our submission to Christ. He's calling us to live a more beautiful life because Christ is more beautiful. And so if, if, when we find ourselves and we're looking at the culture, longing for the culture, wanting the culture, uh, we, we, it's not that we need to white-knuckle our way out of it, but we need to ask ourselves, what am I missing about Christ? There's, there's something more beautiful here that I'm missing out on. I'm missing out on a more beautiful life. And so when we find ourselves drawn into the culture, we shouldn't be asking ourselves, how can I weasel my way out of it? We should be asking ourselves, how do I get more Christ? How do I get closer to Christ? And then the last point is the world calls us to have our minds captured by ourselves, to be obsessed with ourselves, to be raptured in the beauty of ourselves. But God calls us to have our minds captured by Christ. So I'll just read this passage one more time. And it's verse 11. And it says, But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please put your servants to the test for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then our appearance will be examined in your presence, in the appearance of youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. 
So he listened to them in this matter and put them to the test for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the other youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Now, what's interesting about this is, uh, is there, there's some debate on what the king's choice food was. There's, uh, there's some indication that the, the royal food actually did include like some horse meat, and that would be unclean for a Jewish person, so there's that. Uh, but also, like, it's not all the food was like that. And so it, it would have been appropriate for Daniel to just kind of like eat some of the food, right? Not all of it was unclean. And wine, like that was okay for a Jewish boy, right? Uh, they drank wine. And so what, what is going on here? Why did the king's food actually defile Daniel? Why was he so resistant to this? Um, and so resistant to this, he, he actually talks to, uh, to the guy, the official over the officials, uh, and he says, hey, can we not eat this food? And he's like, ah, I actually don't want to get beheaded because of that, so no. Uh, and so Daniel, he doesn't just say like, well, I tried. He actually goes to the guy underneath him, right? And kind of like pulls him to the side and he's like, hey, but you can do it, right? And he's like, all right, 10 days, right? And that's, that's kind of what's going on. So Daniel doesn't give up, right? Uh, and he's, he's pretty, he's, he has his mind set on this, right? And even says, like, he's made up his mind. So what is it that Daniel's actually trying to avoid? And so this food, because it's dedicated to the king, actually was sacrificed to the Babylonian pantheon. So this food was actually dedicated to the god king, Nebuchadnezzar himself, right? And by extension, Nebo and Aku and Bel. And so this food was actually dedicated to these pagan gods, and that's what Daniel was just not going to have anything to do with. I'm just not going to eat food that's dedicated to these gods, it might be clean, according to Jewish culture, uh, but it's dedicated, it's tainted, and it, therefore it defiles me. And so th- this is what's going on, and this is kind of this backstory. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting how there, there's this, this call to, uh, to just have your mind captured by yourself. You're already the best and the brightest in the world. You were chosen out of everybody to be in the king's service. You're amazing. Let's make you even more amazing. Let's educate you. Let's make you better. Self-help, all this stuff, right? Let's give you the best food, the best education, the best language, the best culture. Let's just make you the best version of you. And that's what the culture is calling out to Daniel, right? Just capture your mind with yourself. You are the best. Let's help you with that. Let's help you be the best you. And that's what the culture was calling out to them. And, and hopefully you guys see the correlations with, with our current culture, right? Our culture can't stop talking about ourselves. We can't stop working on ourselves. Um, one student told me about a commercial that she saw. Um, I haven't seen the commercial, but she told me that uh, there was this commercial. And at the end of the commercial, uh, it said, worship yourself. And I was like, that's so on the nose. Like, that's like that is, if you want to know what Satanism is, what, a lot of times Satanists, they don't say, well, I don't worship the devil, I worship myself, right? That is the slogan of Satanism is worship thyself. And so when she told me that, I was like, wow, like that's like just Satanism in a commercial. Like it's just, it's so on the nose. And that, that very much is what Babylon is kind of offering to these, three, uh, to these four boys. You're already the best. Let's make you even better. Let's focus on you. Let's make you the best version of you. And what does Daniel do? He's, his, his mind is just, it's, it's, cap, it's totally captured by God. Again, with the siren call, he's just unimpressed with that idea. Me? Why me? 
Let's be captured by God. And his mind is just wholly captured by God. He's just unimpressed with himself. He's unimpressed with what the world is offering him. And it's not that he rejects. He doesn't uh, reject the education. He doesn't reject the language. He does what he has to do, right? But he markedly stays separate or holy or set apart in the midst of the culture. And that's exactly what God is calling us to, right? Is be in the world but not of the world. And so what we see in Daniel is this this draw to to assimilate into the culture, to be obsessed with yourself, to work on yourself, to love yourself, to worship yourself. And Daniel is just saying, nah, that just tastes bad. Because his mind was just so captured by the beauty of God. He was just so raptured up in what God had to offer to him. And so how this, how this actually applies to us is that what God is calling us to is to be captured in the beauty of Christ. Let's focus on Christ and what he offers and what he is and what he does. Worshiping ourselves is, is just meh. It's just a siren call in light of Christ. So what I want to read is, uh, is Colossians, uh, Colossians 1.13. This is probably one of my favorite passages And it's just talking about the magnificence of Christ. And Paul says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven have made peace through the blood of his cross. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What Christ is offering to us is just, it's something far more beautiful. Far more beautiful than this, 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 this siren's call of saving yourself. This siren's call of working on yourself, making yourself great, making yourself God, worshiping yourself. Why? When we have Christ. When we have Christ who's, who's reconciled all of us. He's made us and he's reconciling us. He tasted death for us so that we can escape death just like he did. He resurrected so that we also can resurrect with him. He's presenting us holy and set apart from the culture and sanctified to God on the last days. He's doing this for us. And what do we have to do? (laughs) Nothing, right? We don't have to save ourselves. It's Christ that's done all the work for us. It's Christ that is everything for us. 
Like Flo said yesterday in our, in our meeting, he says that we, there is work for salvation, but it's not work that we do. We haven't done anything for it. It's Christ that's done everything. And this is what stands Christianity apart from everything else, is everything else is telling you to work on you, to save you, to be better. And so all these other religions are saying, do, 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 and Christ says, done. That's what Christ offers us. So there's this, uh, this quote I, I love, and I know I've, I've read this before, but I'll read it again, and I'll keep reading it. Uh, this, is, uh, this is one of the early church fathers. His name was uh, uh, Gregory Nazianzus. He's talking about Christ, and he says, He was baptized, but he absolved sin as God. As man, he was tested, but as God, he came through victorious. He hungered, and yet he fed thousands he thirsted and yet exclaimed, Whoever thirsts, come to me and drink. He was tired and yet is rest for the weary and the burdened. He pays taxes and yet uses fish to do it. He prays and yet he hears prayer. He weeps and yet he puts an end to weeping. He was sold for a cheap price and yet buys the whole world with his blood. He was a sheep led to the slaughter and yet shepherds the whole world and he was weakened and wounded and yet cured every disease and weakness. He was brought up to a tree and nailed to it and yet the tree of life he restores to us. He was given vinegar to drink and yet he turned water into wine. He surrendered his life and yet he has the power to take it back again. He died and yet he vivifies and by death he destroys death. He was buried and yet he raises again and he goes down to Hades and yet he, sends, he ascends into heaven. He is our resurrection because he raises us up from this world and leads us on to life, committing to death the very same injury that sin has committed to us. This is our Christ. This is our better life. What God is calling us to do is to be captured, just wholly captured by the beauty of Jesus Christ. He is our everything, and he will always be our everything. So as the culture calls us into something else, let's never forget the beauty of Christ. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.